Welcome to the Faith Element Podcast for the June 25th, 2023 session, focusing on Genesis 21, verses 8 through 21, Seeing God. I'm David Cassidy. I'm Nikki Hardiman. I'm Daniel Glaze. It's the three of us today. It is. <laughs> one, of, one, of the, one of the hazards of working with so many ministers is that they get called away <laughs> for very yeah. legitimate reasons. And it, this week we had Bert, who had a member in his congregation who had something come up and he needed to be with them today. And then the sub, the, David Adams, who he had tagged to take his place, yes. also I had a crisis he needed to attend to. So that's Perfectly all right. And the good yep. news is we have very talented people in Nikki and Daniel who are able to, they can stand in for five people. Oh, don't say that. <laughs> undersell. Undersell, David. Undersell. undersell. <laughs> <laughs> Got to remember that. I don't know if your family is like mine. But it's interesting. We sometimes have nicknames or pet names or we have names for one another. But you learn sometimes that it's only certain people are allowed to use those names. And I'm curious if there's such a situation for you or someone in your family that you could share. Oh, I do. My name is actually a nickname. My, I am not named Nikki on my birth certificate. My real name is Lisa Nicole, so it's a nickname on my middle name. But my dad growing up and to this day will still call me Miss Pris. <laughs> and I let him. But nobody else better call me Miss Chris. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I was a very girly girl when I was little. Loved pink and lace and dresses. And so I was Miss Pris. Mm. So I'll try to remember not to call you that. Don't call me Miss Pris. <laughs> My younger sister, Linda, not so much anymore, but she used to call me son when she was learning to speak and learning language. My father and mother called me son. And so <laughs> my younger sister grew up calling me son, which, yeah, it's, it is sweet. So occasionally, even sometimes, when we'll get together, she'll call me that. And it's just, she didn't even think about it, but it is, it's so sweet to me. And again, like if anybody else did that, no, you haven't earned that. That's right. That's right. When my wife and I were dating, her name is Regina. And at one point, I met her family, and I noticed they called her Jean. They would they call her Regina some, but they also would nickname. They'd just quickly call her Jean. Hey, Jean, get this. And so I thought, oh, that's cool. That's a nice shorthand. Shortly thereafter, I said, hey, Jean. And she stopped me, and she said, it's Regina until your family. Wow. <laughs> and I said, yes, ma'am. <laughs> and she said, I'll let you know when you can call me Jean. So once we got engaged, she said, you can call me Jean now. Oh, mm. you call her Jean now? <laughs> yes, but very carefully. <laughs> you are a smart man. Uh -huh. Only on good days. <laughs> Only on good days. <laughs> yes. Only in love. <laughs> yes. <laughs> She's actually a very sweet person, but I, it clearly was a tradition that she valued for some people. So I'm glad to be welcomed in finally. That's great. <laughs> Dear listeners, you know that we sometimes, our leading questions, have some connection with the text. You're probably going, what in the world? But I think Daniel may have a way of connecting this lead-in question. Thanks, David. I'll do the best I can. And by the way, listeners, it's good to be back again with you. I was gone for four weeks, taking a short sabbatical. I'll, I've learned my lesson upon my return. 
David assigned two passages to me that are whew, rough. You're welcome. I think he was teaching you yes. a lesson or something. I was going to say, <laughs> Professor Cassidy does not accept excused absences. This is true. So well, just well said. To... <laughs> back on your side of the line. Okay. All right. So being serious for a moment, several weeks back, I read a distressing story. Story was of a woman named Celia. This was a true story was a slave in Missouri. In 1855, a man named Robert Newsom bought her at an auction when Celia was just 14. That very day, on the way back to the farm, Robert raped Celia. He did so almost daily for the next four years. He fathered two children by her, and he stopped only because Celia finally killed him. Celia's final violation came at the hands of the state of Missouri. She was hanged for her crime. I wish I could say that Celia was the last woman who was ever violated, but we know that isn't true. It happens even today. One in five girls, we're told, in the United States are sexually abused before the age of 18. And it's happened for a long time. Today's scripture passage contains what we might describe as sexual abuse. Why do we study these stories from the Bible? Is the goal to shock and horrify one another? Or do we study them because the story of God's people, our story, is a true one? That is, tales of courage and love and grace and beauty stand right alongside stories of power and sex and selfishness and irresponsibility and abuse. Not to shock, but to tell the truth. To tell the truth of our eternal struggles. Now that I've set up today's passage in such dark terms and context, let me say that if you read this story quickly and don't dig too deeply, it really doesn't sound that bad. Sarah thought she was barren. She couldn't bear Abraham a child, so she provides her servant Hagar to her husband to provide him a son named Ishmael. In the meantime, Sarah conceives a son, Isaac. Like I said, doesn't sound that bad. But if we slow down, read it closely, and especially if we read it from Hagar's perspective, we see it differently. We hear a vulnerable woman taken from her home, sold into slavery, and forcibly given to a man whom she cannot refuse and who impregnates her. Hagar, Hagar gives birth, and she is then cast out. When Sarah sees that Ishmael, as Abraham's oldest son, would inherit the family name and estate, she has Abraham send Hagar and Ishmael away. Where they were supposed to go, we don't know. Just away. Hagar and Ishmael are sent away, presumably to die, because they wouldn't have anyone to care for them. Again, if we read this from Hagar's point of view, we see that the victim is victimized once again. So mother and son are banished. In the wilderness, Hagar lifts up her voice to God and weeps. 
And in the midst of all this sadness, the text makes what I think is a remarkable assertion. God hears the child's cry. God hears his mother's crying. Ishmael means God hears. Ishmael's name promises to every human being, I believe, God hears you. When you struggle, when you are in pain, when you are broken, God is not deaf. God hears you. At this point, an angel appears and says what angels are always saying. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid because God has heard your cry and God knows the trouble you're in. Get your boy, Hagar, and hold him close. He too will become a great nation. And it is through Ishmael that our Muslim brothers and sisters trace their lineage to Abraham and are part of the promise of God. What's more, let's not write off Hagar as merely a victim. Yes, she is that, but she is so much more. She is also a determined mother who loves her son enough to cry out to the Lord to save her son. And Hagar, this Egyptian slave woman, does something rather remarkable too. She is the only person in all of Scripture with the permission or maybe the audacity or maybe the intimacy to name God. She gives God a name. She calls God El Roy, the God who sees, or, and I love this translation, the God who sees me. This is a difficult story, no doubt about it. I know we'll discuss its many lessons, but I'll end my introduction with just one. This story teaches me, it teaches us that our cries do not fall on, onto deaf ears or blind eyes. Our cries are heard, seen, felt in the heart of God. God hears us, God sees us, and God will find for us a way home. And that's a little background on our text for today. Daniel, thank you for getting us started. You handled a very difficult passage or story, really. It's more than just the passage, I think. You told Hagar's story um, really well. I found myself wanting to, to celebrate when you said that Hagar is the only one in Scripture who had permission or maybe the audacity or maybe the intimacy to name God. Mm -hmm. And I love being able to think about that in such a multifaceted way. I imagine it was all three. It is an audacious thing to give a name for God. Um, and I wonder if you could name God. Do you know what you would name God? Either of you. That's I have good never question. thought about it. Wow. I'll yeah. go first while y'all think, because this is something I okay. have thought about. I had to do an assignment in seminary, and it was a very meaningful assignment. And it's something that has stuck with me. And I often see God as a midwife, someone who helps to birth 
into the world, whether that is creativity or newness or transformation, that God is always there supporting, nurturing, and helping to birth mm-hmm. goodness into the world. If this is not succinct or particularly elegant, but a powerful name for God for me would be a God who stands with us or alongside Mm. us. One of my favorite passages of Scripture is Jesus' baptism. And in in both the ways that story is told, Jesus is in line with all of the folks to be baptized that day. And John says, wait a minute, I'm not supposed to— you should baptize me. I'm here. I'm right, baptizing right. you. He he sets it up almost like Jesus doesn't belong in this line, but there he is standing along with everyone else, and that like is it. powerful for me. That has meant something to me. I can't remember who it was that introduced me to the idea. It's not original with me, but it stuck with me. This idea of God as a co-weaver with us. Oh. If you think of the image of somebody who's weaving a tapestry that has mm-hmm. a pattern on it. We so often are led to either think that God is totally weaving it and we're simply playing predestined role, or we're weaving it and God is distant and watching and judging, when I think it's a much more interesting image and accurate that, that God and we are weaving together and creating something together. Yeah. It's not always perfect. <laughs> we mess things up. We probably weave in a way or what are you doing over there? But anyway, it I like the image of that it's dynamic and it's happening together. Mm-hmm. I like that too. I, yeah, I love that because I, I know there are times in my own life where God has said, how about this piece of thread here? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, but then there are other times where I have done something and I've said, I messed it up. And God says, no, I like it. Mm. Let's... We're going to leave that as it is. The best artists, when they make a mistake, boo, I'm doing air quotes, they incorporate it into their work. It becomes Mm -hmm. part of the creation. Say that's part of the painting. Yeah. Yeah. Which is really interesting to think about that and then this passage and what is being woven here. It is because in our story, Sarah and Abraham are weaving with God. Mm Mm-hmm. But not all of their weaving is good. There's probably some weaving they should have cut out. The other is we look at people who we who in the story are left out or pushed out or set mm-hmm. aside are part of what God is weaving into the story. Yeah. Yeah. Almost like a like a this part of the story, Hagar and Ishmael, let's just cast out. Let's pull those threads out of the tapestry. Yeah. God says, no, we're not going to do that. Yep. Yeah. That's not how this is going to go. Those are going to stay part of the story. And thus these two names, right, that are spelled out, God hears and the God who sees me. Oh, wow. So I really like this. So it's got my brain working. Let me see if I can do this. So when you you just said that, we're not going to do this here. And it's Hagar who is marginalized in the story in every way possible. And even the thing that might have brought her into the fold ends up being the thing that really, truly marginalizes her. And so 
I have of late in lots of settings, it's, it's not any one thing, but have felt myself being drawn to and hearing teaching about the marginal characters in Bible stories. Yeah. And so when you just said that, Daniel, it made me wonder if that is a facet we can use for study that maybe God is working in those marginal characters. We so Hmm. often focus on the primary characters of the story, the ones who move the Judeo-Christian story along. Mm -hmm. But maybe it is God, if you think of Rahab and you... Rahab would have been very marginal in her day, and she became a very important voice for God. So I just think I think maybe that is a way that we can begin to look and peel apart the layers. Is God at work in those marginal places in the stories that we read? Mm, that is so good, Nikki, because I, I mean, it doesn't exactly relate to this, but it makes me think of the best scriptural interpretation I've ever heard of any story. Mm. was about the story of the prodigal son, and mm. we were discussing it together, and we do what we often do is, which character do you relate to? Sometimes we're the younger brother, sometimes we're the older brother, et cetera, et cetera. And this quiet man who was a, a drug abuse counselor said, oh, I think I'm one of the servants. And we thought, huh? And he said, I've always identified with them because that's my life work. Whenever anyone is ready to return home, it's my job to throw them a party. Mm-hmm. And I just sat there, the tears started flowing. And wow. I thought, that's exact. he did wh- exactly what you just said. Yes. We never think about the servants. No. We say, they're not the important ones here. Right. And he said, those are the ones who inspire me to do my work. His life wow. work, and it is good and holy work to help people with addiction. Yeah. And if we can do that, we'll see that absolutely God is working through the servants. Absolutely yeah. God is working through Hagar. In, in all of these, we might call them minor, I'll use air quotes now, David, minor characters are nothing of the sort. I yeah. love that. And not only are we supposed to do that, but I think... I think God does this too. We are the response, Sarah and Abraham, are to cast Hagar and Ishmael away. I'm sure there are times when we just want to do that too, because they're the minor characters, they're the peripheral. But God doesn't do that. God hears, God sees. I love this. God heard the voice of the boy. The angel of God called to Hagar. God is active all over this. Then God opened her eyes. Verse 19. That is not a God who has written off someone. No. So I I love this, that you're almost taking our faces and pointing us to, mm. to see something, Nikki, that we, yes, that we desperately need to see. Well, as we said earlier in this podcast, these passages from Genesis that we're looking at the last few weeks, but certainly today, this episode and the next one, (laughs) these are difficult. And you may find yourself thinking, do I really want to teach this? Maybe it's time (laughs) to whip out a special book study. (laughs) But I hope you will linger with this text and will pay attention to the work and the activity of God within it. Where does God see? Who does God see? 
Who does God hear? How does God hear? Because not only does that help balance the sense that our world has a whole different lens of who to hear and who to see, who to pay attention to. And it's so good to be reminded that God sees and hears in an entirely different way. And thank God <laughs> that is not Amen. Amen. I hope you'll have a robust conversation about this text and not hide from it. And maybe as part of your conversation to think about those that each of us are prone to see and hear or not see and hear. May we learn from the God who sees us and hears us. Thank you all for this good conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Learn more about our Faith Element Bible Study curriculum at faithelement.net. Faith Element is a service of Faith Lab.